Good morning, church. It's good to see each of you this morning. Thanks for coming in. What difference do you make in God's redemptive work? What difference do you make in God's redemptive work? Not what difference do you make to God, but what difference do you make in the work that God is doing here? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this time to be together and open the text of Scripture. Please be our teacher. We come because of Jesus. Amen. We're going to go to several Bible stories and Bible passages. The first one finds us right with the children of Israel as they're camped out between Egypt and the Red Sea. We find them crying out to Moses because the Egyptians are bearing down on them. And we're going to jump into that story and hear their words. Do not be afraid. This is God, excuse me, God's words. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more. You shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. So here's Israel. They're camped, as I said, on the shores of the Red Sea. Of course, none of them are sleeping right now because the word has gone through camp. The Egyptian army and Pharaoh, they're almost here. Moses, do something. Of course, they didn't say it that way, but we won't pretend. They, they were terrified. God's assurance to them is, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of the Egyptians. In fact, hold your peace because you will be delivered. This text and the following one introduce today's teaching or half of today's teaching and half of next week's teaching. This idea that God comes to work among us. Amen? God works, right? He's present. We heard Terry's story. And it was a double-edged story. On one side, no more tumor. Praise God. I heard you saying praise God and clapping. Five more tumors maybe. Right? So this is tough stuff, but God's in the middle of it. That's the big story. No matter how many tumors come and go, God's in the middle of it. And that's this part of the story. But I want you to notice what happens next in this story. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? It's an interesting question. Moses, the people have come to him and Moses has gone to God and said, God, do something. And God just said, hold your peace. There's going to be a great deliverance. No more Pharaoh, no more, no more Egyptian armies. You won't see them ever again. These guys that are breathing down your necks, never again. And then he turns to Moses and says, Moses, why are you crying to me? It's almost like, Moses, why aren't you doing anything? And so we come to the second half of this A-B relationship. God's doing something 
But it's fascinating in the biblical story that there are also human beings doing something. And I'll put some highlights up there for you. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? What was he supposed to do? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Moses, why are you looking at me? Do something. Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod. Whose rod? Your rod. And stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. In these A-B presentations, today it's the human factor. Next week it's the divine factor. So on one side we have the first part of this two-piece text where God says, I'm going to do something so incredible. You hold your peace, I'll deliver you. And on the other side, God turning to Moses and saying, Moses, what are you talk- what, why are you crying out to me? Go do something. This human divine cooperation in God's work in the human family. I want you to go with me to another story. This one is a story in Zechariah chapter 4. There's a few strange visions in Zechariah. This chapter begins with one of those strange visions of uh, like golden lampstand and two olive trees. That's the very bare bones concept in Zechariah 4. And the question is asked to Zechariah, do you understand? And he says, no. So then the angel interprets for him and here's where we jump into the story. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but what? By my what? Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That reminds me of a little text we saw in Exodus. Hold your peace. I'm going to take care of the Egyptians. But let's keep watching because we find some familiarity again with the Exodus story. Watch this. Zechariah 4, 9, the hands of Zerubbabel, I'll put those highlights up for you, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. Whose hands? It does not say angels were building the temple. It does not say God was building the temple. It says Zerubbabel's hands were building the temple. Remember that Exodus story? Moses' hands and his rod. Let's continue. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Fascinating. Again, in the biblical text, we find this divine human cooperation. I want to take you to one more passage before I get put a little thought on the screen. Isaiah. Isaiah found himself, it's early in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah found himself in a vision, encountering God. You may remember the vision, he sees God, describes him as high and lifted up. He sees the angels in the temple reverencing God. Isaiah feels himself to be unclean, and then an angel takes a coal, touches his lips, and Isaiah's lips are healed, so now he can speak for God. And then this question, and that's where I want to pull you into the story. Isaiah, I heard the voice of who? Whose voice is it? The voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I? Now, who's asking the question? 
God's asking the question, thank you, and who will go for us? Who's the us here? God. Very interesting. God is asking a human being. He's saying, who's going to go for us? So now we're back at that same idea of divine human cooperation. It's hard to choose which examples to pull because you're thinking of other examples while I'm talking. There, the Bible, in fact, is brimming with this idea of divine human cooperation. And today I want you to reflect on that and its implications to you personally. What does it mean for you as a human being to be engaged with the work of God? It's actually a pretty important and serious question. We could ask questions like, if Moses doesn't say yes at the burning bush, what happens? If Adam and Eve didn't eat the fruit, what happens? If Mary doesn't say yes, what happens? Human free agency is here in the mix. And so why am I bringing this to your attention? Here is a couple of statements that I said we were going to see in a minute. Here's the first one. If free will is a thing, that is, if free will is actual, you read plenty of books, there's plenty of arguments that argue against it, I think that's bunk. Free will is a reality of human existence. God has created the universe with free will. And so because there's free will, that means human agency is an essential part of God's redemptive work. Now you may find yourself arguing with me. That's okay. Because I'm here to challenge you with one thing. I'm here to challenge you to ask yourself the question, is your place in God's redemptive work meaningful or significant? If it's meaningful or significant, what are you doing with your agency in God's redemptive process? Does that make sense? In other words, how much of my responsibility am I processing and acting on? Because there's really a tension. There's the one tension where God is an actor in human history, right? Exodus story. They're backed up to the Red Sea. God says, hold your peace. I'm going to deliver you. Zerubbabel. God says through Zechariah to Zerubbabel, not by my, not nor by power, but by my what? So there is sometimes the human tendency to say, well, you can imagine Moses sitting on the rock. Hey, folks, I know you're real worried here, but God's going to show up. And then Moses just sits there. That's the human extreme where God does everything. I do zero. Moses sits on the rock just waiting. You're waiting all night for God to show up and do something. And then there's the other side, which we see permeating Scripture too, where the human beings forget that there's even a God. And um, you have stories like the story of the children of Israel. They're, they're almost to go into, into the promised land the first time. 
and the spies come back and they tell the story of the terrifying, impossible land to conquer. And the people are terrified because who are they thinking has to conquer the land? They got to do the conquering. And if they got to do the conquering, they're going to be squished. So you have God, hold your peace. I'm going to show up. And you have the option of just sitting there and waiting for God to do his thing. Like literally doing nothing, just sitting there. People pray for a job. I'm praying for a job. No job interviews, no job searching, no job listing, checking. They're just purely 100% waiting for God to do something. That's, the, that's that side. So then we come to the other side. So let me finish that story. The Israelites, they, don't, they, they say, we're not going in. So God says, okay, this, this is not going to be good, but you're going to actually have to go back into the wilderness for a while till you learn that you're not the only part of the equation. Well, the next morning, they change their minds. They say, oh, we don't want that. We want to go in. And so they rally their forces, and they're soundly defeated at their first battle because they thought that it was all dependent on them, that they could do this whole thing. So that's the other extreme, where we live life like we're quasi or atheists. You know, there's a lot of Christians who are closet agnostics or closet atheists. They talk about God's existence, but they live in the world like there's not a God anywhere in any corner of the universe. They're worried about all their stuff, figuring out how they're going to solve all their problems, because God isn't practically active in their lives in their calculations. So we can be like practical or theoretic atheists. Those are the two extremes. Now, I'm going to put this next statement up. This is the one you might find challenging, which is okay with me. I'm not worried if you disagree. I just want to push you to think about this. So if, back to this one, if free will is a thing, if free will is reality, which we believe it is, then that means that without human agency, God's intentions are unattainable. Whoa. It's okay. You can disagree with me. But let me ask you a couple of questions. Does the fall happen if Eve doesn't listen to the serpent? So human free agency got us into trouble. Let me ask you another question. The Bible tells us through Paul that God is not willing for any person to be lost. But the biblical prophetic picture is that there are lost people and saved people. In both of those examples, was God's will perfectly achieved? Eden, Eve eats the fruit and falls. Is God's will achieved in that scenario? What interrupts it? Human free will. God's will is that every single human being that takes a breath is in heaven for eternity. Well, I should say on earth for eternity, like saved, like paradise. That's God's will. But there will be people lost. So is God's ultimate will achieved in the future? What's the intervening factor? Human agency. The story of Scripture is permeated with this idea of human beings cooperating. 
So in some sense, there is the fact that human free will, the way God's designed the universe, has the capacity to interrupt or support or cooperate with the divine mission. Story of Moses. God comes down to Moses and says, Moses, I'm these people. They're, they've, I'm just done. I can't do this anymore, Moses. You step back. Let me take care of them. Wipe them out. Moses intercedes, and the Bible talks about God changing his response to the situation. So the implication of the story is that God is moved by human intercession. Think of the story of Abraham. He's met by three men who visit him under a terebinth tree. And two are angels, one is, is God. They tell the mission, God tells Abraham, I should say, the mission that's about to be to go down in the valley, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around there. Abraham immediately begins to do what? Intercede. And God's answer to Abraham is to agree to spare the population that is slated for destruction, providing Abraham's specific numeric number of righteous people is met. Here's the thing I want to be settling into us this morning. We do have a tendency to either be, sit on our backside and wait for God to show up, or to pretend like the world turns on us. How do we live in the space where we take seriously our agency to make a difference while simultaneously trusting in a God who promises to show up? That's the question I want you to wrestle with, to, to just think about what does it mean for you to be an active agent with God in His work, not independent and not sitting inactive? What does it mean for you to lift your rod? What does it mean for you to tell the people to march? What does it mean for, let's look at a couple more illustrations here. One is this, the inspiration of Scripture. And I, I want to pull this one up because it reinforces this idea of divine human cooperation. Here it is. This is Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Because why? Oh, I'm on the wrong side. I should be on this side. It wasn't the prophet's own idea, right? Because it's not an atheist world. It's not a God-devoid world. These guys were not spinning yarns out of thin air, dreaming dreams out of thin air. It wasn't a pure human endeavor, right? For prophecy never had its origin, over here, in the human will, but prophets, though human... So they're not 100% here, but there is the human, and then let's continue, spoke from who? God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Isn't it fascinating? In the giving of Scripture, we have the divine human combination, the Holy Spirit carrying 
them along. Here's an example of that. I'll field two examples for you. This one in Luke. I myself, Luke himself speaking at the beginning of his book, chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too did what? Decided to write an orderly account. So here is Luke clearly using his agency to engage in the collection and retelling of the story of Jesus, guided unquestionably by the Holy Spirit, according to Peter. Here's one more, and then we're going to look at uh, a, a little, a few words by Ellen White. Here's John, First John, we proclaim to you what we have seen and what? We're telling you what we saw and we heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. In other words, there is clear engagement by John and the followers of Jesus in retelling the story that facilitates the faith of those who hear it. It's interesting that Paul in Romans 10 asserts that people are saved by faith in Jesus. And then he asks the question, but how shall they believe without hearing? God-human cooperation in this grand redemptive work. Here are these words from Ellen White. The infinite one by His Holy Spirit has shed light into the minds and hearts of His servants. He has given dreams and visions, symbols and figures. And those to whom the truth was thus revealed have themselves embodied the thought in human language. The Ten Commandments were spoken by God Himself and were written by His own hand. They are of divine and not human composition. But the Bible, with its God-given truths expressed in the language of men, presents a union of of the divine and the human. Fascinating. We saw that in Peter. Now Ellen comes along to put it into a whole package. Let me take you now to Jesus' counsel, to the early church. This is in the context of two followers of Jesus walking to Emmaus. Jesus shares the evidence in the Old Testament of His Messiahship of his life, death, and resurrection, and then tells them this. You are witnesses of these things. Who's the witness? You are witnesses. Human agency. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with what? So we have human agency. You saw this thing, and we have divine agency. Wait in Jerusalem. I'm going to send power. And then you might be familiar with this passage. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Hey, where's that? That's the God thing. Jesus, I've got all the power. 
But then it shifts. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, oh, now we're back with the divine. I am with you always to the very end of the age. There's the human side teaching and the God side being present with them. They waited in Jerusalem. And on Pentecost, they received the power of the Holy Spirit. But the gospel didn't go with men sitting in a room filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and enjoying their fellowship. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians, and I'll read a part of the chapter, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lists an incredible selection of suffering that he's gone through to take the gospel. Paul had to put boots on the ground in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to actually take the message to people who could believe it. And then he says this, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So here it is, church. What are you doing? What am I doing with my agency? The human factor seems to be from the text of Scripture that our engagement or non-engagement has material impact in the accomplishment of God's purpose. Now, I'm going to grant this. The God side is full of mysteries. There are statements in Scripture like Jesus saying, God can raise up stones uh, or children to Abraham from the stones. So we do want to be careful about putting God in a box. But from the story of Scripture, I also sense that God has chosen to operate within the framework of human agency. And that my decision to engage or not engage or to engage negatively or positively has material impact on the work that God is trying to do. So, what are you doing with your agency? I think we should ask that question on a daily basis. God, like Isaiah, God, I'm here. What's your need for me today? How can I engage with what you're trying to accomplish in my neighborhood, in my house, in my business? How can I be present with you? And then, remembering that no matter how present I am, I can't accomplish this work. So I've also got to be present to receive and be empowered by the Spirit of God. I want you fundamentally to wrestle with that tension and to pray the Isaiah prayer. God, here I am. Let's pray. God, thank you for challenging us through Scripture. Thank you for helping us recognize that you love working with human beings and that you have promised this vast, unlimited resource of your power to work with us, through us. That's incredible. 
and then challenged us to ask ourselves the question or to offer ourselves to you as Isaiah did, here I am. God, may we be engaged with you in your great work of redemption. Wherever we find ourselves, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were blessed by today's message. For more content or to connect with us, visit us online at brunswickadventist.church.com.